Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, Kellen, I think we received the third or fourth message from someone just yesterday stating how soothing of a voice you have. What do you have to say about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> really, though, people just love your voice. And I think um, they're not all women. Some of them are women. Some of them are men. You just got that alluring, calming essence, I guess. I think when people say that my voice is soothing, they're just saying my voice is really boring. <laughs> it's like, like a lullaby that puts them to sleep. Yeah. Like I could listen to you if I want to fall asleep, but not if I want to actually be engaged in what you're saying. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I think uh, we've had a lot of people who reach out and say that your weeks, the weeks that you come up with the the content of the episode are some of their favorites. So congratulations for that. Well, if I'm going to get vulnerable here, I've actually always been really self-conscious about my voice partly because i think it's kind of nasally but also because the way i talk i just can't string my thoughts together as quickly and as eloquently as i would like i've got these experiences from when i was young where people told me that i talk really slow so anyways i am glad that whether it is boring or soothing it's at least something that people are willing to send a couple compliments about and you know i may not have a great radio voice but I definitely don't have a television face. So this is the this is the medium for me <laughs> where, you know, you say that people tease you about the way you spoke growing up. I remember in high school, one of my ex's friends like railed on me about how big my nose was. And I am still self-conscious about my nose to this day because this girl had the audacity to like tell me to my face that I had this huge 
honking nose. It is so funny that those comments just stick with us forever. I've got a brother who I've always wanted to look like. Like, he's just taller than me. He's really big and strong. People tell him that he looks like Thor. Like, what's his name? Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, Chris Hemsworth. But one time, a friend of mine told my brother that he has kinkles. <laughs> Which, if you don't know what that is, it's just saying that <laughs> your calves and your ankles are all one. Like, there's not a clear point where you can see where your ankle is. And he occasionally still brings that up. Like, <laughs> I think it... I don't even think it's true. I think it was just said to kind of annoy him. But he still thinks about that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it is. It sucks how those things stick with us, but maybe, maybe over time we'll shed them. Well, stepping away from childhood trauma that we've experienced, maybe let's get into the topic of the current trauma that we're going through, which is, you know, the collapse of industrialized civilization. It's comparable. Kind of the same thing. <laughs> yeah, basically equal issues there. So this week we are talking about methane, which I mean, we have to admit if like, you were telling someone, hey, I'm listening to this awesome podcast. And they were like, oh, really? Like, what was this week's episode on? And you're like, methane. They'd be like, you're a freak. <laughs> My wife is like that. She, you know, she'll like notice what I'm reading about or a book I'm reading or something. And she'll be like, are you serious? Like, this is who I married. <laughs> My dad read a book about salt. It was like an 800 page book about salt. It was called Salt, I believe. And uh, my mom gave him crap for years for that. But anyway, I got it from him. Methane is going to be an interesting topic and it's really relevant to collapse. You know, we've talked a lot about CO2 and carbon emissions and, and what that means, but methane is an extremely critical greenhouse gas. And it's one that there's a lot of hype around and a lot of talk about specifically in the collapse community because of some theories and things out there around potential future warming from methane. And so we thought this would be a good episode to sort of talk about what methane is, how does it compare to carbon dioxide, and maybe what are some of those theories, ideas, and, and future predictions about how methane is going to affect climate change? Yeah, it's definitely a hot topic when it comes to collapse. So let's discuss a little bit about what it is. I wasn't aware until I looked into it that methane is also called CH4 frequently. You know, we talk about CO2 because it's one part carbon, two parts oxygen. But methane is CH4 because it's one carbon and four hydrogens. It's relevant to this conversation because it's a greenhouse gas. Which, by the way, as I was thinking about that, you know, at one point I did electrical work. I worked for an electrical company and we would do residential and commercial stuff. But there was a house that we went to in the middle of winter. And it was cold outside with like a foot of snow freezing temperatures, but we did electrical work for an individual who owned a greenhouse and they wanted some lighting placed in their greenhouse. And we went in there and it was so hot. And I was surprised because obviously I know what a greenhouse is, but it is amazing. You know, you think of a greenhouse and the light comes through the glass. It hits whatever it hits, which then converts that light into heat. The heat gets trapped by the glass, but often with greenhouses, there are vents or windows that they have to use even when it's really cold outside so that it doesn't get too hot. And I think we fail to recognize exactly how the planet works. And you think about the atmosphere and all that light coming from the sun and the heat that's produced and kind of trapped by our atmosphere, methane just plays a really interesting role in that. So we'll talk a little bit about why it's such a unique role and how in some ways it's scarier than CO2. 
But one thing that's unique about it, you know, CO2 basically comes from burning fossil fuels. Methane, there's a much larger variety of sources. There's both natural sources and anthropogenic sources, which again, just defining some things. I know we've used the word anthropogenic before, but it's just anything originating from human activity, usually talking about pollution or pollutants. But if you've got those two kind of categories in your mind, natural sources and things that are anthropogenic or human caused. First, the natural sources, there's decay of plant material and especially in wetlands. So methane is produced by a biological process called methanogenesis. It's one of the metabolic stages of microorganisms on organic matter. So microbes are like mammals in that they eat organic material and they spit out carbon. But if these microbes live in waterlogged, oxygen-deprived soil, they spit out methane instead of carbon. So this happens in wetlands, which include bogs. And this is the biggest single source of methane. So about a third of all methane floating in the atmosphere comes from wetlands. Another natural source is just seepage of methane gas from underground deposits. So it leaks out of thawing permafrost. It comes out of the ground near oil and gas deposits. It comes out of some volcanoes. You know, there's some other th sources, like it's even produced by termites. But all of that makes up 10% of total emissions each year. If we switch to the anthropogenic sources, I'll read this statement. It's from a National Geographic article. It says, Today, about 60% of the methane in the atmosphere comes from sources scientists think of as human-caused, while the rest comes from sources that existed before humans started influencing the carbon cycle in dramatic ways. So the majority of the methane that's being produced is human-caused. Some of it comes from landfills. We talked about that a little bit in our episode on waste. In our oil and natural gas systems, there's one statement that says, worldwide, the energy sector contributes about a quarter of the annual methane budget. And there have been limits placed on the amount of methane that like oil and gas companies can allow to be released, but it's really hard to enforce. So, to read another statement, recent studies suggest that wells in the U.S. alone are producing about 60% more methane than previously estimated by the Environmental Protection Agency. One thing that I'll mention here is that in my research, one thing that was frustrating to me was how often I felt like I came across conflicting information. And in a lot of cases, the articles would mention that there is conflicting information. It was sort of this widely known fact that tracking methane and methane releases has been really inaccurate over over time. Like you just mentioned, you know, it's believed that oil and gas releases from these companies are like 60% higher than what was previously thought. And they're quickly coming up. And I'll talk about this a little bit later with better technologies to be able to track that. But I was sort of frustrated by all the different numbers. However, the one number that I found that was exactly the same as what you just mentioned was this idea that 60% of all methane emissions comes from anthropogenic sources and 40% is from natural sources, which makes sense with the numbers as well, because previously, the last few hundred thousand years, methane in the atmosphere, parts per billion, stayed between 400 and 800, and it just fluctuated back and forth between that. But now we're up around 18 to 1900 parts per billion. So the math there actually ends up working out pretty perfectly. You know, if we were 800 parts per billion before, we're now at 18 to 1900 parts per billion 60% of that being anthropogenic and about 40% being naturally caused. Yeah, and I'm glad you're going to speak a little bit more about how it's measured and how we're getting better at that 
Okay, so another one of these anthropogenic sources is just our agricultural activities. Um, rice farming is actually a big one because it's very similar to wetlands. In fact, going back to the National Geographic article that I've cited from, it says, Some scientists think they can see the moment when rice production took off in Asia about 5,000 years ago because methane concentrations recorded in tiny bubbles of ancient air trapped in ice cores in Antarctica rose rapidly. So I thought that was interesting. They have been able to measure. They can see that rice farming produces a lot of methane. Probably the one that, if you're not as familiar with the topic you've heard about most, is cows. You know, cattle have microbes in their stomachs that help them break down and digest these really tough grasses that they eat. And that causes methane to come from both ends of the cow, and it continues to produce methane from the cow manure. There are 1.4 billion cattle globally. And that's just increasing because of the increased demand for beef and dairy. But all grazing animals together contribute about 40% of the annual methane budget. So yeah, those are the big ones. There's also coal mining, wastewater treatment, some industrial processes, stationary and mobile combustion, there's kind of a list, and I watched one lecture in which they showed a pie chart, and it is interesting to see that there are just so many pieces of the pie. There's so many things that are contributing to our methane emissions, but like you emphasized earlier, 60% of what we produce each year can be attributed to human causes. Yeah, I think it could be hard to wrap your mind around how much and how quickly the amount of methane in the atmosphere has grown. I would recommend to anyone listening to this, just Googling really quick, you know, do a Google image search or DuckDuckGo if you don't want to be tracked, you know, atmospheric methane over time. And it's just amazing how relatively steady it was for so long before just absolutely skyrocketing. And it's so obvious the impact that we've had as humans on methane releases. You know, people who will say, well, climate change is normal because it's cyclical. You know, there's just no looking at that chart and saying that, yeah, this is just a normal cyclical change. But the scariest part of it all to me is how much more impactful and potent methane can be in the atmosphere over carbon dioxide. Yeah, it definitely has a stronger impact than CO2 in terms of, like you said, just how potent it is in regards to global warming. It's not as big of a contributor. Here's another place where that 60% number comes in. You know, they say the radiative forcing or essentially just the warming that we've experienced since pre-industrial times as a result of methane is about 60% as much as what we have experienced from CO2. Yeah, and to clarify, I'm saying that methane has done 60% as much warming as CO2. Like if the total warming is a score of 160, CO2 has done 100 of that and methane has done 60. And I get why you're clarifying that because it could be a little confusing. To It kind of makes it sound like you're saying methane has contributed 60% and carbon dioxide the other 40%, but that's not what you're saying. You're saying that the amount of warming from methane is 60% of what the warming from carbon dioxide is. Yeah, thank you. So it's considered the second anthropogenic greenhouse gas after CO2. But it's a little bit different as you talk about the way to mitigate climate change and where to put your focus. Sometimes people will say, well, methane is just a distraction from CO2. We should only be focusing on CO2. But 
it really comes down to just different time frames. CO2 lasts much longer in the atmosphere. We're talking like 100 years, whereas the atmospheric lifetime of methane is only nine years. However, it's about 28 times more powerful than carbon dioxide at warming the earth on a 100 year time scale and more than 80 times more powerful over 20 years. So when you talk about short term, yeah, methane doesn't last nearly as long as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but it is so much more powerful in the short term at creating warming. And so going back to that point for just a second, where you had said warming from methane was something like 60% the amount that carbon dioxide caused, some numbers that I found that basically say the same thing, but in a different way, is that something like between 25 and 35% or so of all greenhouse warming is from methane. The other 65 to 75% would be from carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. And at the present rate of increase, which is one to one and a half percent per year in methane emissions, that's equivalent to adding another 30 to 40 percent of carbon dioxide to the present input. So that's just to show how powerful methane is and how even a seemingly small growth rate of one to one and a half percent per year actually adds a ton of warming and radiative forcing to the atmosphere. One other thing to mention there is that this article stated that the relative rate of increase of methane has greatly exceeded that of carbon dioxide in the last several decades. And I think one point to really push on there is it's the relative rate, right? The comparative of the amount of warming that's happening, the growth in methane has outpaced carbon dioxide significantly. Yeah, I know we're throwing out a lot of numbers here, but hopefully that gives a good sense for just how much of a problem this is. It really is a serious issue and it's a growing issue. Part of the reason that methane is so powerful as it relates to global warming is that its effect is compounded by its chemistry. And I'm no chemist, but I've been able to learn that its chemical shape is really effective at trapping heat. And methane ends up having a handful of different effects on the atmosphere. So, for example, it inhibits outward thermal radiation from the Earth, or in other words, it traps heat. It absorbs the thermal infrared radiation, but it also apparently gets oxidized in the atmosphere, and that produces tropospheric ozone. And if you need a refresher on how the atmosphere is layered and classified. The troposphere is like the bottom layer, the the layer close to the earth. Um, Some of the methane reaches the stratosphere, which is the next level up, and it oxidizes there, which produces water vapor. And if you think back to our previous conversations, we've talked about water vapor in the atmosphere and the effect that has kind of these blankets that are formed around the earth with all the clouds and water vapor. Some of it apparently gets oxidized all the way to CO2. But anyways, all of that is just to say that those different ways that it affects warming and the atmosphere combine are what make up that, you know, 25 to 35% of the warming that we're seeing take place. So the amount of warming already being caused by methane is extremely high. It's a significant portion of our greenhouse gases, and that's only going to increase. Like I mentioned before, relative to carbon dioxide, it's increasing very rapidly. And there, as you mentioned, are a lot of different ways that that happens. A lot of that is human-caused, a lot of it is natural. And I'm going to read this statement from one of the articles that I did research on. It says, we do not know the course global warming will take. It depends on future release of greenhouse gases and all the climate physics associated with that. 
and we do not know the effect of such warming on the potential methane sources. Hence, all estimates on the future emissions of methane from natural sources are pure guesswork. So we already know that methane is coming from natural sources, and it's really easy to say like, oh, well, if it's coming from a natural source, then that's just normal and it's not human caused. But the truth is that human causes can lead to an increase in emissions from natural sources as well. The article goes on to say that the biggest unknown and the one with the greatest potential impact is the release of methane from a warming seafloor. The amount of methane in the seafloor is thought to be greater than that of all hydrocarbon gases stored in reservoirs on land. In fact, it has been claimed that methane-laced ice crystals in the seafloor store more energy than all the world's fossil fuel reserves combined. Yeah, I found something that talked about a big warming event that happened a long time ago in the past, but they can see that it's tied to a big release that took place of the methane from the ocean floor, like what you're talking about. You know, one statement about that specific subject says, under high pressure, like the pressures found deep at the bottom of the ocean, methane solidifies into a slush-like material called methane hydrate. Vast amounts of methane are frozen in place at the bottom of the sea in this chemical state. Though the exact amounts and locations are still being studied, the hydrates are stable unless something comes along to disturb them like a plume of warm water. Yeah, so this idea is what leads to a hypothesis that's kind of widely thrown around in the collapse world. And there's a lot of controversy around this hypothesis and the science behind it. There's still a lot that's not known and a lot of research that's being done about the feasibility of something like this occurring. So we do want to mention that we're not stating that this is a sure thing, that this is something that will happen in our lifetimes or in the next several hundred years, but it is something that is a possibility. And I know that there are people in the collapse community and probably people listening to this podcast right now who put a lot of stake into this hypothesis happening, and we're not trying to discredit them or their thoughts. But I do want to talk about very candidly the sort of evidences that there are for and against this hypothesis happening. So it's called the clathrate gun hypothesis. Kellen, you just mentioned methane hydrates. Hydrate is another word for clathrate in this scenario. We're talking about methane hydrate or methane clathrates. It's the same thing. And like you just mentioned, clathrates or hydrates is a form of water ice that contains a large amount of methane within the crystal structure. So the methane basically gets infused with the ice and like you said, it's kept safe. It doesn't go into the atmosphere. It doesn't cause any problems unless it's disturbed. Some examples of past disturbances, like you mentioned, so a really warm plume of water. There are also examples of landslides occurring or abrupt waves that can disrupt this methane ice from the bottom of the seafloor and cause it to rise. But why this hypothesis holds so much weight, why it's so important, is because, like I'd mentioned, there is just so much methane on the sea floors, under ice, in ice shelves. It's estimated that not less than 1,400 gigatons of carbon is presently locked up as methane and methane hydrates under the Arctic submarine permafrost. So to put into perspective what 1,400 gigatons is, we currently release 570 million tons per year into the atmosphere, and one gigaton is a billion tons. So 1,400 gigatons being stored under the ice or in the Arctic is about 2,500 times the amount that we currently emit per year. It's just a ton of methane. Recent studies suggest that around 5 to 10% of that methane is subject to basically, so like you were referencing, the vulnerability of being disturbed and exposed 
from warming, and therefore they conclude that a release of up to 50 gigatons of predicted amount of hydrate storage is highly possible for abrupt release at any time. That would increase the methane content of the planet's atmosphere by a factor of 12, equivalent in greenhouse effect to a doubling in the current level of CO2. So they're basically saying in a very short period of time, geologically, we could lose 50 gigatons of methane to the atmosphere, which would essentially double the amount of carbon dioxide equivalent that we have of warming right now. Yeah, I hear that. And I'm curious because you've done a good job of explaining that this is a very scary thing, but that there's a lot of controversy around how likely it actually is. So it makes me wonder what it would take for that to happen or how worried we really need to be about it. And this is sort of the frustrating part about the clathrate gun hypothesis, is that there's not a clear answer to that question. It is simultaneously taken very seriously by some scientists and disregarded by others. There are studies and reports that say that it's completely feasible and even perhaps likely to happen, and other reports that say there's no need to worry about this ever happening over the next couple hundred years. It's just not a, a probability at all. According to one article, in 2008, the United States Department of Energy National Laboratory System and the United States Geological Survey's Climate Change Science Program both identified potential clathrate destabilization in the Arctic as one of four most serious scenarios for abrupt climate change, which have been singled out for priority research. The U.S. CCSP released a report in late December 2008 estimating the gravity of this risk. A 2012 assessment of the literature identifies methane hydrates on the shelf of East Arctic seas as a potential trigger. So those are an example of scientific organizations that are taking it very seriously. Another study, just to kind of give you a scope of the seriousness of something like this happening, said that it modeled a 1,000-fold methane increase within a single pulse from methane hydrates and concluded it would increase atmospheric temperatures by more than 6 degrees Celsius within 80 years. So, I mean, those are like extinction-level warming <laughs> temperatures that we're talking about. But one article that I read cited a couple of different studies that were done by taking just a ton of ice cores from Greenland and from Antarctica to be able to determine the amount of methane increases during previous warming periods. And this study found that permafrost lakes didn't release vast quantities of methane as the planet left its last ice age. It also talked about how the certain type of methane that comes from clathrates was not present in those core samples. So they were at least saying that like the past intense warming events that happened were not due to abrupt releases of methane. But that being said, the periods that were studied, the temperatures during those times were only about a half degree Celsius above where we're at now. So it was saying that beyond that amount of warming, we don't really know what's capable of happening if something like the clathrate gun hypothesis would be feasible beyond that level of warming. So in the article, she stated... The danger now is that temperatures by the end of this century could rise several degrees higher than during that previous warming event. If that unleashes still more carbon trapped in permafrost, some of it might be converted into greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide or methane. The carbon has to go somewhere, she says. So all of that is to say that it's a very scary hypothesis. If that were to happen, we're talking about a rapid increase in warming. And we're already increasing so rapidly. So it just it would just be in geological timescales out of this world. But I personally don't know how much like stock to put into that. I don't know how much to fear that because we already have so much going on, right? I feel like there's so much to worry about already that even without this just crazy hypothesis coming to be, 
collapse is still on the horizon. But knowing about it does make me sort of perk my ears up a little bit when I hear about news of increasing emissions noticed from the Arctic, or you hear about these permafrost melts or explosions that happen, you know, opening these enormous craters in the Siberian Arctic where all this methane is escaping. All of that is increasing rapidly. But I also want to mention that right now, the amount of total emissions of methane that come from the Arctic is actually relatively very little. Again, this is one of those areas where the numbers range a lot as we're getting better at the technology that tracks this. But from those types of geological processes that are happening in the Arctic, it was only something like, I saw ranges between 13 million and maybe up to 50 million tons of methane that was coming from the Arctic each year. And that's compared to the 570 million that we're emitting globally. So currently it is a source. It's a decently significant source, but it's nowhere near our most significant source, which is really the human-caused stuff that's coming from agriculture, oil and gas mining, that sort of thing. Well, when it comes to the clathrate gun hypothesis that you've talked about, I think I'm kind of putting it in my mind in the same category as like the Kessler syndrome, where it is something that we're headed toward and there is a risk there, but it's not nearly as immediate of a threat as all the other things that we're talking about, or I guess as inevitable of an event. It's almost like every time I get in the car, there's a risk I'm going to get in a car crash. So the more I drive around, the more that risk increases, but there's a chance that I won't ever get in a car crash. Whereas at the same time, if every day I'm eating really fatty, unhealthy foods, it's not like that's suddenly going to cause some big personal health catastrophe, but over time, it is a sure way to lead to a health decline. So I don't know if that's a fair analogy to make, but that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Is that how you feel about it, Corey? Yeah, I think it's a great analogy, a great way to look at it. I, I could spend a whole lot of time and anxiety worrying about something like this happening, but there are so many other ways in which we could collapse first and sure ways that it will happen eventually, right? It will be interesting as more evidence comes out around this or more studies come out around the, the possibility or probability of a large amount of methane from these clathrates. I hope that more evidence continues to come out saying that this is not going to happen. But for the time being, I'll likely focus my mental energy on the more sure things that we know are coming our way. And to kind of finish up here, I wanted to mention, as stated earlier, that we're coming up with these new ways for tracking methane. And this is kind of a new sort of study in science that's coming out as they're realizing how important methane is, how potentially disastrous it can be. So in the good news, I guess, um, maybe good news in quotes, because I'm not really sure <laughs> how great of news it can be, but in the next couple of years, new satellite projects are headed for launch. This article says one called the Carbon Mapper, a public-private partnership in California, and Methane SAT, a subsidiary of the Environmental Defense Fund that will help fill in the picture with unprecedented range and detail. These efforts, experts say, will be crucial not just for spotting leaks, but also developing regulations and guiding enforcement, both of which are sorely lacking. So these satellites are allowing us to view what we've never been able to view before, and that is where methane is coming from in lifetime. We can see the amounts that are being leaked and pinpoint where those leaks are coming from. Is it coming from such and such a gas company or, or oil mining company? Well, now we can go directly to them and say, you need to cap this. 
or is it coming from, you know, a certain agricultural hub or whatever it is, what they're trying to do is find who are the big emitters and how can we get them to stop? I think that this article was a little too much on the hopium side, basically in stating that, you know, they said nearly half of the roughly 380 million metric tons of methane released by human activities annually could be cut this decade with available and largely cost-effective methods. You know, I don't know that I think we could cut half just because the money that's behind it, the economic growth and, and politics involved in doing something like that doesn't seem likely to me. It may be possible. But I do think that at the very least, the technologies to be able to view it better, even if it can't help us prevent them, which hopefully it will do some of that, but at least it helps us to track them so that our future models of where we're headed with methane can be more accurate. As they're coming up with these technologies, they're realizing, wow, there is so much more methane being released than we realized. So at least we can get an accurate picture of what the problem is, which will hopefully allow us to get a more accurate picture of how much warming we can expect in the future. I do think that as the technology improves, we'll probably hear more and more of the faster than expected, simply because the real numbers are, are coming into focus. One thing they pointed out is that when it comes to human-caused methane emissions, the vast majority of them are coming from a few emitters. There are a lot of little leaks and things, but for example, in California, they found that nearly half of the state's methane output came from less than 1% of its infrastructure. So they're saying, you know, if we can get regulations, punishments in place, or even incentives in place to get those people, those organizations to stop emitting so much, we may be able to sort of rapidly reduce the amount of methane. Carbon dioxide is like that just big, slow-moving, steady thing that is hard to curb over time because it lasts so long in the atmosphere. Methane, where it's really powerful, but it doesn't last as long, if we could cut our methane emissions, it would make a much greater impact in the immediate term. And so while I think that getting to net zero carbon emissions is extremely important, I do think that if we could find a way to cut methane emissions more quickly, that would probably have the biggest impact on the immediate term for increasing our chances to mitigate warming as we go into mid-century. So what I'm hearing from all of this is that although methane isn't as big of a contributor as carbon dioxide, it does have a really powerful effect. In some ways, that makes it a little bit scarier, but in other ways, it makes it a little bit more hopeful that we could have a more immediate impact on decreasing methane emissions than we can on decreasing CO2 emissions. But as is, you know, we're talking a, a pretty big portion, 25 to 35% of greenhouse gases is coming from methane and 60% of that is human caused. And you mentioned that the rate at which that is growing is much more rapid than the speed at which carbon dioxide emissions are growing, at least in proportion to one another. So I'm hopeful that these new methods you're talking about, of them being able to measure exactly where the leaks are, what the biggest contributors to our methane emissions are, and, and then go find ways to cap those, essentially. That, that sounds like a great message. I think you're right that it's a long shot to think we can just make a really significant immediate impact. You know, it sounds like they're talking about it almost as if there's just a hole in the ground that's emitting a huge percentage of our methane and we can just go put a plug in it and then we're, we're set. But obviously there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, they talk about, you know, incentivizing companies to capture the methane and, and use it 
as an energy source or capping it, plugging leaks, things like that. But it's not as simple as that. And you can't just barge into a private company and say, you have to do this right now, at least not under the current regulations that are in place. You know, it says regulations on methane emissions today are a patchwork of local and national measures with few international agreements that set specific targets. In the United States, state policies range from fairly strict controls in some states, such as California and Colorado, to little to no enforcement in Texas and others. So coming up with sort of the political part of that, working through bureaucracies, creating the regulations, then actually going out and enforcing the regulations, dealing with potential economic loss due to enforcing those regulations, legal battles, all of that stuff just makes me not super hopeful that it's going to happen the way that this article was saying it would, you know, how easy it would be. But at the very least, you know, I think of if there were a collapse, when we talk about different types of collapse that can happen, it's great to know that 25 to 35% that comes from methane could rapidly dissipate and decrease that amount of warming over just a couple of decades. Not that we look forward to collapse in any sort of way, but to know that while the carbon dioxide side is baked in, the methane side could more quickly regulate. Well, that's all we got for this week. Thanks so much for listening. If uh, you're trying to fall asleep, go back and listen to Kellen's voice soothe you (laughs) into a lull, and we'll speak again next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.